Hello and welcome to the Sleep Like a Baby podcast. I'm your host Hannah and I'm an infant sleep consultant as well as a mum living and working in South East London. Hello, I can't believe we're on the sixth episode of this second series already. My goal was to make 10 episodes so if that goes ahead then we are past the halfway point um, and it is also nearly, nearly the end of January here so um I'm feeling very optimistic and hopeful that spring will not be too far away and that we can just power on through now because it is rather grey and cold here in London at the moment. Um, But I just wanted to say hello to all of the people listening from all over the world. Every week I go on and look at my stats and I am blown away by all of the different um, nationalities listening to this it's so lovely and thank you to everyone who's been emailing and messaging me to say to share your feedback with previous episodes I absolutely love it and um, definitely enjoy the episodes that feel more like a conversation than me just ranting into the abyss now um, this week's episode I'm I'm so thrilled because I have been wanting to talk about this subject for ages and it's a big one so um, I'm really passionate about kind of carrying babies which sounds a bit silly because I mean what else are we going to do with them Um, you know they're not going to be walking around themselves from birth but I think what I mean and and what my guest today explained so well is that what we're talking about with carrying and it's also can be referred to as baby wearing or you know um, using slings etc is why that is so important but just to have full transparency here um, I am not saying that you are anyone is wrong to put their baby in a pram or buggy or stroller nor am I against putting your baby down into a bouncer or even a cot full disclosure I use a pram (laughs) I use a stroller I've used lots and lots of slings my child sleeps in a cot there are you know lots of different ways to do this um however I do think it's really valuable to know all the benefits of carrying and I think it's really interesting how this conversation is evolving um, it, throughout this next, our current generation of, of parents, because I think one of the most common messages we receive about parenting in Western culture is that we should be mindful of making rods for our own back. So this warning that we receive, it tells us to not start something just in case we'll have to keep doing it forever and often the things that we're warned against are the things that will supposedly stop your child from ever being independent Uh, for example if you let them into your bed they'll never get out if you always support them to fall asleep you'll be a bedtime hostage I think some people call it until they start high school And if you carry them, they won't learn to walk. I've heard people say that before, which I think is crazy, but here we are. The fear of making children clingy, I think, is everywhere. And I've spoken on this podcast before, I think, about all the times that I've been told to put my baby down and warned against him getting too used to, say, contact naps or being in a sling. And, you know, I think the people who warned me against carrying and closeness 
they weren't horrible people. They were lovely. <laughs> they were some of the people I really admired. Or they were strangers who seemed genuinely well-intentioned and friendly. Uh, on the whole, I do believe that most people are trying to help and pass on some useful information because that's what they've been told. For me, though... My pram was a really great storage facility for everything other than my baby. (laughs) It carried my shopping bags, my coats, my toys, feeding paraphernalia, all of that stuff. But it wasn't very helpful for transporting my son, who basically spent 90% of his day snuggled up on my chest. And, you know, honestly, it wasn't really even a a choice to use a sling. Um, I wasn't making a statement about my parenting style. I wasn't following a trend. My baby just wanted to be held and I wanted to hold him. And yet I kept being told that this essentially was putting me on thin ice, um, that I'd be making him clingy. Um, So fortunately, I suppose, A, I thought this sounded a bit daft, and hysterical uh, especially considering I was often being told this with you know a baby who was only a few months old so uh, it never seemed to make a huge amount of rational sense anyway and also I had the very good fortune of stumbling across a brilliant local sling library where they did a brilliant job of explaining to a group of us first timers just how carrying and having lots of closeness would actually help our babies become independent when they were ready. Um, That when we meet all of those needs for connection, our children do eventually feel ready to confidently um, separate from us, but they do so in their own time. You know, the reality is that forcing separation actually creates more clinginess. So for example, you know, I always think that anyone who's ever been ghosted by someone they were dating knows this to be true. So if you've ever gone out with a man or a woman who never returned your calls or was super flaky, I bet you didn't feel more confident and loved. <laughs> that that behavior probably made you feel pretty anxious and needy or rejected. And I'm talking from personal experience here. And it's similar, with, you know, it's the same with babies and children. The more we reassure, the more secure they feel. Um, So this is something I go into in great depth today with uh, my interview with Zoe Woodman, who is from The Sling Consultancy. And I'll link in the show notes to her website and Instagram account so you can find out more about her if you want to. Um, But, you know, what I really wanted to talk to Zoe about was why, why we prize independence so highly in our culture where has this idea of creating clinginess come from and do we really need to be worried about carrying our babies too much or cuddling them too much and also we really go into what the benefits of closeness are you know how does being held change a child's development and how does it impact us as parents so okay here we go The Sleep Like a Baby podcast is supported by The Octopus Club, the online marketplace where you can buy, sell and give away baby and kid stuff without any hassle. 
If your home is piling up with toys, clothes and bits of kit that your little one no longer uses, the Octopus Club offers an easy, environmentally friendly way of selling or donating things to other families. And if you're on the hunt for high quality second-hand goods, this is the place for you. Honestly, the stuff on there is gorgeous. Check them out on Instagram or go straight to their website, theoctopusclub.com, to sign up today. Hi Zoe, I am just thrilled to talk to you today. I've been wanting to do uh, an episode about carrying for for forever actually um so thank you so much for your time today you're welcome I'm glad to be here I love talking about this stuff so (laughs) yes I'm a big fan of your Instagram account that's how I came across you um and everything you know that you talk about very in terms of like practical tips as well as all of the the science and the you know um attachment stuff behind the importance of baby wearing, carrying, you know, all of that stuff. I, I love, I love what you do. And, and so for the listeners, I thought you could tell us a little bit more about you. Um, obviously you started the Sling Consultancy in, was it 2016? Yeah. So I've been working with Slings um, since, since sort of 2012, when we set up a local Sling library um, and hadn't had sort of any formal training. Um, before that I had been carrying uh, my eldest um, and yeah, so I had been using slings, but not, not sort of helping others. And then we set up the sling library, which was amazing. And then in 2016, I trained as a consultant. So that just opens things up a little bit differently in that you have your own insurance and you so you can offer a different service. So sling libraries are amazing because you can go, you can have a look at slings, try them on. Um, you know, it's very much a, a group sort of format. Um, it can be very busy, um, whereas a consult obviously is, is a bit different. I can come into people's homes. We do them on Zoom. Um, we can we can work in a slightly different way. So we can work outside of manufacturers guidelines, um, which we can't do in a sling library environment. So that they, they sort of have different um, pros and cons. So if you know if you can't make a sling library session, then you can have someone come to your house and, and help you at a time that suits you. Um, so it can be it's, it's great. And so, yeah, I trained in 2016 and. Since then, have done various different um, extra trainings. So I've done the Slinger Baby Breastfeeding and feed, Feeding course, um, and I've done loads of just extra things. So yeah, I've, I've it's been a long journey. My eldest is now thirteen, um, and she's she's oh. the one that we started carrying. And then I have an eight year old and a, a six year old now. So Amazing. my journey's changed, obviously, as as we I've progressed and used different slings and carriers and my experience of that has obviously changed. So I can remember being that, that first time parent and being like, oh my God, what do I do with this baby? To having multiple children and going, I need more hands. <laughs> so, you know, <laughs> everyone's experience um, can be hugely different when it comes to, to carrying. And I, as you'll know, I tend to use the term carrying rather than baby wearing. Um, mm-hmm. Baby wearing tends to be the more mainstream term, um, which many people might have heard, but it doesn't just it's not just for babies it is for older babies infants toddlers and beyond so and I tend to encompass carrying to also mean when you're holding your baby in arms when you're walking around with your baby holding them but not using a a device an item to help you so there's lots of different things that impact kind of the pros and the cons and the benefits and the risks depending on, on on what you're using and how you're using it but some of the benefits come from just the process of that togetherness um and so yeah. you know a lot of people will say oh well I'm, I'm I'm not one of those sort of 
those people I don't I'm not a baby wearing person it's like but you will carry your baby in in your arms absolutely because babies can't move themselves around so (laughs) you know and containers are not always easy to move around and they can be quite heavy and cumbersome and they're not necessarily great for our physiology so that's why I use that kind of carrying term um, to mean any aspects of carrying I love that. Yes, I'm going to revise my my use of the word actually as well. That's really you've explained that really well. Um, and also, you've you've got a degree in a first class degree in psychology as well, right? I do. Yes. Yeah. And and you know, through that, you cover lots of different aspects. Obviously, it's very broad as a degree. Um, but we did go through child development. We went through things like language acquisition um, and attachment obviously but quite at a basic level so yeah the research and the things that I read now I'm delving really deep into those fields and um just exploring them through knowing what I know about carrying and, and it's really interesting looking at that kind of um now looking at it in a slightly different way yeah I bet and I yeah I just thank I just remember when I had first had a baby or when I was pregnant I heard of these words like sling library a sling consultant oh like baby wearing I was like what is that you know I just had I just thought it seemed all very weird and I have to admit I did have a bit of an idea about the kind of person who would use a sling and I thought well that's not me and I and I got sort of um seduced by all of the really like sleek prams and cots that you know like the designs and you know and I just felt like that was what was you like I was supposed to do um (laughs) and um and I spent a lot of money on those things no absolutely I I can really resonate with that I was very much like that when I had my eldest I was a professional I'd worked in London I was you know you look on the baby lists and it tells you what you need um and not always sometimes there might be a sling or a carrier like thrown in as an afterthought um but, but carrying is not necessarily something that is seen as a normal parenting journey it's not seen yeah. as an essential part of that journey which I think it absolutely is um and you know we'll explain more about why I think yeah. that but it, it, it yeah. I was absolutely like that now the yeah. reason I share things in the way that I do relating it to the science is because if somebody had told me the science about it and gone and, and gone into a little bit of detail about it I could have understood why it mattered um, so for me yeah. I'm one of those people that need to I'm always like but why does that work what's yeah you know why does my baby not like going down like I don't understand I just thought my baby would come out and we would hold it and we would feed it and we would put it down and it would sleep (laughs) and that's not reality um it might be for a very few people but in general my experience is not that and then thinking I'm doing something wrong I'm there's something wrong with my baby um Mm. why aren't they doing the whole feed eat sleep you know like Mm -hmm. all that jazz Mm -hmm. and you're like and I realise now it's because I had no absolute clue as to what was, you know, <laughs> actually biologically normal for, yeah. for infants. And we live in a time where we're so culturally indoctrinated in the way that we parent and the expectations yeah. that we have that we aren't always aware of what is biologically going on. And I think if I'd have known all of those things, I could have embraced it a lot sooner and it would have made my life a lot easier and that's why yeah. I'm like I, I love it when people come to me antenatally and you do a session because you know like the massive impact that's going to have um because they're starting that journey so much sooner when their head's in a different place and you know we've seen I've seen it 
many years you know we get those parents at six weeks absolutely frazzled and looking like a deer in the headlights going but I can't put my baby down and we're like yes well this is not this is like I understand it's really hard but this is actually what is normal uh, and yeah. it's like some secret club that nobody tells people about but I don't know whether part of that is if we told people what it was like whether they would really believe it or not <laughs> I don't know I know I often often think this yeah I think this about sleep all the time like is there any point antenatal like doing antenatal sleep education because will you take it in and will you will you believe it and will you remember anything and will it just put you off yeah (laughs) and I think it is really hard because I think we do need to switch up what what is antenatal education Mm. what what are we setting parents up for but it's because of the culture and the capitalism and the industrialization and and essentially the way we live predominantly in Western cultures that creates this and why it feels so hard. Um, And, and, you know, we we don't need to be talking about so much focused on just the birth because that's ultimately it might be, you know, it it feels very big before you have your baby. But actually we need to focus more on what what are you going to do? What are the steps you're going to take when you get home? What support do you need in place? You know, how are you going to sleep? Because your baby isn't just going to slot into your life. Um, and yeah. actually when you're fighting what your baby needs, it, that's why it feels really hard because you're fighting millions of years of evolution. Um, yes, it's, yeah. And we're looking at maybe 100, 150 years of rapid, exceptionally rapid change in our, in our culture and the way that we live. You can't, 200 years is not enough for our, our biology to adapt. And so what we end up with yeah. is this clash of, you know, biologies where we're going well I want to sleep for eight hours a a night and my baby doesn't and then we're like well (laughs) you know oh well I need to sleep train my baby well actually what other things could we do can we shift up the way that we're doing things how can we change our sleep patterns to suit our baby rather than trying to get this baby that is massively underdeveloped brain to fit our developed brain way and so yeah I think many people don't think about maybe switching to a floor bed or how you can shift your evenings around a little bit um yeah I think those are the sorts of conversations that we need to be having with parents to say well how are you going to tag team how are you gonna not resent your partner for snoring next to you when you're sitting up feeding (laughs) um you know how are you going to work as a team because it it's really easy and and also obviously when you do have a baby you are the one as as a you know predominantly woman if that's how you identify uh, you know you're the one that's given birth you're the one that is probably feeding if if that's the route you've gone down um and so a lot of the responsibility is on on you for that but carrying can be really helpful for for the other partner to help you um because especially very early on babies don't really care who they're with (laughs) they just know that if they're on another human then they're generally okay. <laughs> so yeah. actually, all the other times you don't need to be needed, can you get someone else to look after your baby so you can get maybe a bit of extra sleep in the morning or in the afternoon? Or, you know, how can we shift our patterns around it to tag team? And, and it's very much that those early days, those early months when they really, really do need you is when you are putting in so much of the groundwork um, and it can feel so difficult, but you will come out of that and, and it very rapidly changes and then the focus will shift away from from predominantly the main caregiver, the main you know if you're feeding and you're 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 the person doing all those things because that's how the attachment starts and how it shifts. Um, and so it tends to be with one main caregiver, and then it tends to progress. And now you know now, for example, when they're so much older, like it doesn't really matter which parent or carer 
they they go to but in those early days and months and, and weeks it, it often you know a lot of the load is on on the main person that's given birth and so it it's really important to have conversations about well, how, what support do I need from my partner what support do I need from other people do I need if I don't have family um, do I need a postnatal doula um, you know first time around even second time around I'd never heard of a doula and it's like why are we yeah. not telling people about these people that will come and help you non-judgmentally yeah. you know to support you through this because we we don't yeah. have that around us we often don't have our families and our support um, kind of around us again down to the way that we live and the capitalism and industrialization um so yeah it, that's a lot of it is that's why it can feel so hard when we look at other cultures where they don't live in the ways that we live um you know where parenting is just what you do there's no words there's no terms yeah you know yeah. they don't they don't have necessarily distinct terms for baby wearing because that's just how they live <laughs> so <laughs> yeah you know and also you know things like um, overtiredness isn't a, isn't a thing because a baby just sleeps when they're tired because they're close to you and they're held and they're fed and they're you know things like that these there's a lot of western obsessions with like routines and um you know unsettled babies and things like that but actually yeah I, I think that in cultures yeah, where babies are just held more they sleep more and they totally. feed more and they are and that's, are, yeah. and that's in, inextricably linked to how our biologies work together um yeah. you know sleep doesn't have to feel such a battle it doesn't have to feel so hard but it does require parents relinquishing some aspects of control and you know the majority in western culture the way that we have been parented ourselves the way that fundamentally parenting works is under this guise of control um mm. and that's why we we kind of expect these babies to just come along and fit in um because we expect that we can control it but but i always thought well i can't I can't control someone else's choices, behaviors, you know, I can, yeah. I can help them and I can support them, but I can't, I can't control them. And, you know, often parents, you know, babies don't struggle with baby sleep. They're quite happy yeah. most of the time <laughs> with how they sleep. It's adults and culture and society is not happy with how babies sleep because it doesn't fit our model yeah. of get up, take them to a childminder or a nursery, go to work, come home. You know, it doesn't fit that model. Yeah. Um, yeah. and, and those early years are so fundamental to our brain development that it, we, we do need to realise that they do really need us. I mean, obviously our children need parents at whatever stage, but, you know, 85 <laughs> percent of brain development happens in, in the first five years of life. Um, it's why we have the early years kind of frameworks that we have. It's why UNICEF talk about the importance of this, the World Health Organization. Uh, you know, yeah. all, they all talk about how early childhood is so so fundamentally important um and the more research that happens the more we're finding actually even those first four months where we feel that babies are potentially fairly passive they're not really you know they don't do a lot um we, we don't really you know we're knowing now through the science that those months are crucial for for the laying of the foundations of our brains um and, and how the brain develops you know the last 20 years has been amazing for for all of this research um but it takes a long time for this research to kind of filter into the mainstream approximately three generations um oh my goodness so yeah we've got a long time uh so yeah part of what I try and do is normalize a lot of this stuff and, and explain to people because I very much believe that when we understand why something is happening it feels easier we can cope with it mm -hmm. better um even though nothing necessarily has changed about the situation or changed we can roll with it a little bit more um and, and then that that shifts your you, you but it shifts your experience of parenting 
It is because once I learned about that conflict between our culture and my baby's biology, that it meant that I was no longer blaming myself for everything that I perceived was going wrong. And that that's a huge shift, isn't it? Because as mothers, particularly, I think women in our culture tend to internalize and, and, and doubt themselves and, and absorb a lot of that blame on ourselves and say, well, if my baby's not feeding or not sleeping or crying a lot or not doing this or they're not fitting onto that routine, we think we don't necessarily always think what's wrong with my baby. We think what's wrong with me. And then it's not the baby. It's not you. It's the, like you said so eloquently, it is the culture. It is this conflict between something it's 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 expecting the impossible and yes there's going to be a few babies who you know everyone's got a, a one baby in the antenatal group or your cousin's baby or whatever who just you know <laughs> seems to just fit into the routines and you know sleep beautifully but the reality is most babies don't and so um yeah no and it's it's yeah. interesting though because we we hear so often you know through our maternity services through living in a patriarchal society that you know we're we're to be objectified we're to um our bodies are failing us you know we can't give birth um mm. we're told on so many levels to not trust yeah our instincts and our mm-hmm. gut and you know throwing on top of that if you've experienced trauma yourself or you've you've had you know high levels of stress in your life you're gonna, you know, respond to these things in a very different way as well. Yeah. So you're right. Like we live in a culture where, um, you know, women are blamed for, every, you know, yeah. every, you know, a lot yeah. of things yeah. that happen to us, and 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 it's realizing that that's just not not the case. Um, but there's you're talking about you know massive societal cultural things that we we can't really change yeah. ourselves, yeah. but we can change through the way that we parent in our own homes and I, I remember through our slinger baby training you know the the biggest bestest form of activism is how we parent and yeah. what we do in our homes and the way that those ripples go out into the world and I fundamentally believe that we can change the brains of future generations through through carrying essentially but through the way that we parent because the way if we if we carry what that does to our biology how it changes us to be way more responsive to our infants mm-hmm. That means that that shift in by being responsive, we shift their brains. We also shift our brains as adults and, yeah. and that changes. And, and we will end up with generations of people that are much more compassionate, mm-hmm. much more, um, you know, giving, much more kind, less narcissistic, yeah. less less of this. Well, I'm all right. You know, so doesn't matter about anybody else kind of attitude um, that kind of collective impact can be massive and it can feel really hard like when you live in it all the time to feel like what you're doing makes a difference but what we can just do is focus on ourselves and what we do with our own children yeah that makes so much sense what a big sign that is of an individualistic society that the most vulnerable and needy members of our culture are expected to fend for themselves on certain levels you know that you can't even you know they have to slot into your life because you know because we are just like you say about this culture that is all about me 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 yeah and until you break it down and speak to people and get them to really understand that you know their brain is not connected up they're not manipulating you they're not capable of that 
and, and to just take that step back. But what we've got is, you know, whatever point you become a parent, you've got maybe, you know, 25, 30, however many years of, of just it being absorbed into your being and not realizing that this is the way it is. And I feel that's why, you know, a lot of people as you get a bit older, get a little bit wiser to all of this and start to reject the way that we live and start to make different choices for your lives. Because I think very much early on, you're just a bit of a hamster on a wheel. You know, you go work, you earn the money, you spend the money, you pay your taxes because that feeds the system, right? That's how Western cultures work typically. Um, whereas you go to other cultures and it just isn't like that. And I'm like, but our biologies are fundamentally the same across all, all, all of the planet. Um, and so why is sleep such an issue in certain cultures and not in other cultures? And do you have to start looking at the way that we live? Um, and, and, and what can we change to, to maybe shift that up a little bit to change these sleep problems or difficulties or, you know, and, and then it does start from there where we have children's needs, infants needs, newborns needs not being met. That, that then starts this, this role of this like cascade approach of, you know, issues and, and effectively trauma. Now what happens, you know, and trauma is, is a bit of a buzzword. It's getting used a lot. It's thrown around a lot, you know, being trauma informed, et cetera. But, but essentially it's understanding that if we've experienced trauma, our physiology, our brains, our, our bodies, our hormones all work a little bit differently. Um, and and it's, it's kind of working out that. But basically, if we, if we aren't meeting it in an individual's needs, then, then they have to meet those needs themselves. And, you know, a newborn can't. <laughs> Um, and so we get into the place where, you know, many Western cultures are now where we have massively high drug addictions, um, alcohol addictions, various addictions. We have cancer rates that are huge. We have massive issues with things like diabetes, um, all the major causes of death fundamentally are, are linked to how we have been treated, um, how our bodies react to to trauma. Now, it's not to say that everybody reacts in the same way, because it depends on, on, on those, on that real solid foundation. And if you as a newborn and a child know that you are safe, know that the people that are around you are there to keep you safe and they meet your needs most of the time, then you can deal with stress. You can deal with a traumatic situation and it doesn't tip you over into toxic stress, which then damages the brain. Um, but if you don't have that structure in place in your brain, if you don't have that structure around you of support, and if you haven't had that secure attachment, then, you know, your brain reacts in a different way. You might be tripped into stress much quicker. So if people react really quickly to a stressful situation and they shout and they're very aggressive, or um, if people might take risks unnecessarily, they might not be able to make good decisions. It's all because of that, that, shaky foundations that they had mm. and the stuff that then builds on the top of their brain isn't isn't as rigorous isn't as uh, able to take those knocks as easily and so what we know is that if we have a secure attachment in our early childhood those people tend to be much more resilient mm. to situations and stress because we are all going to experience stress in our lives but our physiology impacts how it it comes out as behavior yeah we need to learn so some to... people's yeah so some people's um what's called the hpa axis it's like 
it's thought of as a seesaw, but it's not quite seesaw. Um, for some people, it works a bit differently. Um, but those those these brown brain kind of functions and foundations they, they are embedded in early childhood, um, and so generally with a, with our stress system, what happens is that HP axis will tip. So imagine it is like a seesaw. You've got stress and cortisol on one end, and you've got oxytocin on the other. And what happens is oxytocin generally can balance out. Um, cortisol so if we have a very stressful situation so for example if our baby's crying actually by holding your baby it is changing the way that that baby experiences that moment and the way that you experience that moment um, it doesn't necessarily mean it's not stressful still but it means that physiologically in the brain different things are happening mm -hmm. because the brain's not being flooded with cortisol the, the oxytocin is kind of neutralizing it in some way so and there's things we can do ourselves to help ourselves calm down, mm. right? To give ourselves some oxytocin so that we can feel better. So there's lots of kind of little biological hacks we can do along the way. And one of these is, is carrying. Mm. Because what happens when a baby is on our body, that contact, the pressure through our skin sends signals to our brain. Oxytocin is released in the area and it's also produced in the brain. So it creates this... Um, this impact this it kind of it just changes the whole experience and even if we don't have control over it our body our bodies react to these hormones to this touch it's not a conscious thing and so I love that carrying can be used in that way as a way to help support positive mental health to support our hormones to support our brains um, and, and our biologies but together so yeah. I feel like it's it's this battle between well my needs matter too as a mother or as a parent yeah. as a person I'm going to put my needs above my babies um or is there a way that we can you know it doesn't have to be this battle between your needs and their needs we can do way we can do things together that meet both those needs um definitely and also you know oxytocin also plays a really important role in breastfeeding as well doesn't it if yeah. you are you know if you're nursing you know that's and and also you know I've read um some really interesting research about how carrying um, you know, can if you if you've got a baby with a, a low birth weight or is struggling to gain weight, how how carrying can also help them to to gain weight more quickly. Yeah, and it's there's so much research, and it's it's what I love doing is connecting all the dots up um, because you've yeah. got all this research happening in different fields and, and within the area of kind of science and research, you've got they they very work very narrowly, and so you might be doing just research on attachment, but you're not looking broader. You're not coming out and looking at it from from grabbing all the the trauma stuff and grabbing all the cortisol and neurobiology and the, in the the hormone stuff and you're not kind of looking at it all going ah oh, this is all connected um, <laughs> so yeah like from a from a point of view with with low birth weight babies so what happens when we are carrying our babies is our babies bodies and brains work less hard because they know biologically that they're safe mm. if a baby is not safe their brain is focusing on trying to keep them safe so their brain has to work harder to be vigilant to look out for danger to make them cry if they haven't got anyone near them um, it, it, their brain and body is working harder just to breathe just for their heart rate to keep going and so if the brain is having to focus on those things it can't focus on connecting up and making all these amazing connections that it needs to make and so what we've got is if the baby is on another person, their brain is working on all of that. It doesn't have to use all that energy up just trying to survive. 
And so there is a huge amount of um, research, predominantly on on premature low birth weight um, babies that maybe are in you know special care, um, because they are more at risk of negative consequences later on. But what's really fascinating is Niels Bergman, who is the you know father of, of kangaroo care, skin to skin. He um, he has proposed instead of calling it neuroscience, calling it nurture science. Um, and to say that although we have all these advances in medical um, kind of matters, in, you know, we have all these incubators, we have lots and lots of care going on for all these babies. What we're missing is, is this contact. Like we haven't seen, although the survival rates have gone up, we haven't seen the neurological benefits. A lot of these babies still have cognitive issues, um, have very, diff- you know, very different outcomes, have very different learning situations. Um, and, and he's, proposing that that's because fundamentally those babies are experiencing trauma when they are separate from their parents and what we try to do is we try to replicate that contact in some way Um, so they might have you know those knitted octopuses that they put in an incubator that's to replicate the contact that a baby has with a person so how about we just actually give them what they need (laughs) how about we try and make it possible so that those parents can carry those babies or have some contact with those babies um, and we're forgetting that the, the, there is a negative impact to the parent not being involved in have, holding their babies so what you tend to find then is that parents that have experienced separation um, for whatever reason we have to understand that that's traumatic to the, the parent and to the baby and, and mitigate that through other circumstances so what can we do to minimize this you know there's going to be situations where obviously you're separate from your baby because of ill health and various things but instead of putting barriers up to parents to say, well, no, they're too fragile, we can't take them. Okay, what can we do? What can we do that supports this as much as we possibly can? And it's always this, this, this you know, tricky balancing of risks. Um, but what they're starting to realise is that we are, priori- we are prioritising short-term survival over the long-term development. And so that's not easy because we don't have a crystal ball to look to the future and see what the outcome might be. But trying to do what we can as much as possible I mean you go to some countries and they don't have the medical advancements that we do they will practice kangaroo care like 23 hours a day Um, they will discharge babies from hospital quite early on and the the mothers and parents will go to these like little kangaroo clinics where they sit with their babies on them literally chest to chest no just maybe a nappy on um, because they they don't have the, the incubators and they don't have these things and they're finding that they in those, they're not having the, the such dire long-term consequences. And so I think it's really interesting, isn't it, when we start to delve into the science and we go, but we, we're trying to help. We're trying to help your baby survive. I mean, like, but <laughs> at what cost? You know, and, and everything I think is really important to think about, but at what cost? You know, yes, I need to sleep. Um, I could sleep train my baby, but at what cost? Um, you know, to my baby and, and to me, because again, we separate babies from their mothers. That impacts the mother's biology because our biologies, from an evolutionary point of view, expect our babies to be on us uh, because that's how the human race survives. And that's essentially what our biology is trying to do. It's just trying to keep procreation going. Someone might be listening to this thinking, oh, I, uh, should I never put my baby down? Or is it, is it wrong if my baby sleeps in a cot? Or is it, you know, it, I like walking in the 
my baby in a pram, you know, <laughs> am I, am I putting my baby through trauma and stress? What would you say to that, to that person listening to this? Do you know what? There are going to be times when you need to go to the toilet, right? You, you, and you're going to have to put your baby down and they may well cry. Yeah. That's a fundamental, you know, balance of, well, well actually, what do I need? Like as parents, we need to eat, we need to <laughs> take care of ourselves too, but not at the cost of what might happen to our baby. So we have to find a way that we can make that work together. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's, it's not about everything. It's not about never letting our babies cry, never feeling anything because our baby just might be grizzly and that's okay. Yeah. 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 Um, But we need to balance that out. And, you know, there's the concept of the good enough mother. There's, you know, it's, we don't have to constantly meet their needs all the time, but roughly about over 50% of the time so yeah. again the research is not not clear on this but they reckon around 70% of the time you know yeah. if you have to go to a doctor's appointment and your baby is crying in the car seat you have to do that that's yeah. not something you can do but is there something else you can do that will help that situation yeah. so you know nothing is ever black and white it's always going to depend yeah. um and there are some points where you know if a mother is delirious and having, you know, psychosis type symptoms, like we, we can't just let her go with no sleep. Yeah. Okay? But it doesn't yeah. mean we have to sleep train our babies. Like yeah. what else, what can we do? And fundamentally, most of it is actually providing them with support. Yeah. That's, you know, but we, we are very much a sticky plaster culture, right? We, yeah. we just Quick want to fix. stick that. Yeah. Yes, stick, yeah. Give me the tablet. Give me the yeah. thing. What's the know, hack? Yeah. What's yeah. the cheat? What's the hack? And it's like, yeah. this is a long game, right? Yes. Growing a brain is yeah. a long game. We're in it for, for the, for the long term. So you yeah. have to be thinking, you know, what do I want my relationship to be like with my child when they are 20? Yeah. You know, we need to not, be so narrow in our view day to day of going well I, I need my baby to sleep now you know actually yeah. your baby will sleep eventually but maybe they it's will. not on the time table that yeah. ma- like matches yours yeah. and sometimes that's going to have to move around and there are things that we can do always to mitigate mitigate things but there's always going to be times when you know we can't meet their needs and, yes. and that's potentially okay but then it, like I say it's just thinking about how can I do that? So for example, I used to go to the toilet all the time with my baby in the sling on my body. Yes, like, me too. <laughs> that's just what I had to do. And so I yeah. would also make, um, I would get my husband to make me a, like a packed lunchy type thing. I would get him to, you know, the thermos of, of hot water so I could make a cup of tea when I mm-hmm. needed it. Having things close to you if you're sitting down feeding, you know, it is all that thinking about and, and, and doing it kind of proactively. Definitely. And what I love about what you're saying is essentially like ruptures are inevitable. We are, we are not perfect. We are never going to be able to respond to every single cry, every single grizzle, nor should we have to, we have to just be good enough. Ruptures happen, but actually carrying and closeness are brilliant strategies to repair as well. The inevitable crying on the way to the doctor's mum needs to go and have a shower. These things are part of life. So it's not about being perfect, but actually by carrying your baby and your toddler or you know and and having that closeness and understanding how their brain works that's a strategy to also repair some of those little minor stresses and help help them recover and co-regulate again absolutely and trauma is not a thing trauma is how our bodies react to it so mm-hmm. you know it's it's not as complex and that, i mean it's very complex in that everyone will experience this potentially the same event very very differently um because it, you know we are built up of many many layers yeah um everything that has happened to us 
and we've experienced in our lives before this point has shaped where we're at now. Um, it doesn't mean it always has to be that way. And, and when we become parents, our brain is massively shifting. Mm-hmm. So the whole thing about you know baby brain is a real thing in yeah. that your brain is, is at this moment in time going, oh, there's this, you know, we need to keep this baby alive. Um, and, and it works on building responsiveness. And if we're the more we're responsive to our babies, the more our bi- biologies react with that and the more responsive we become. But if we don't and if we distance ourselves, the harder that is to change. And, and so the brain is always plastic. There's always an opportunity to, to change the way that we, that we think and the way that our brains work. Um, it, it, it is harder the older we get. So that's why learning languages, for example, as a child is much, much easier than when we get to older age. Um, and so it's understanding that there's many ways that we can change the way our brain thinks about things. And our brain isn't always right. Our brain fundamentally just wants to keep us safe. And it's understanding our reaction to our babies crying. Like it's it's really stressful. Like our brain goes, oh my God, the yeah. baby's crying. We're <laughs> gonna give our position away. We're gonna be eaten by a tiger. Like, shush, <laughs> this baby needs to stop crying. And so we yeah. almost need to go to our brain, my baby is safe, my baby is okay, I am here. I'm just going to the toilet for five minutes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and so we have to kind of, sometimes we have this battle with our own brains around, around yeah. that, but actually understanding why our brain and body reacts a certain way is really powerful to be like, and, and just, I would just say, just get curious, just listen and be like, oh, that's interesting. I wonder why it's doing that. And it is, you know, it's about that biology at the end of the day, our brains and bodies just want us to be safe. Um, and if there's a baby crying, they're not safe. And which is why babies will cry a lot and then stop. Yeah. And then cry a lot and stop. Because if they cry a lot and no one comes to them, they're also in danger. Yeah. So then and they, they stop. And they go into, yeah. and, and they don't they don't stop because they're not upset anymore. Yeah. Because if we could look at their physiology, if we could look at their brain, if we could, you know, read their their breathing rate, their heart rates they are still in very much an alert mode, but they, they, they will go into shutdown mode. They will go yeah. into freeze mode. And yeah. so just because the baby has stopped crying doesn't mean they're okay. Mm-hmm. Um, there's some fascinating research that was done on infants and the where they sleep. Mm-hmm. So looking at, uh, at arm's length um, at the end of the bed and in a different room. And they tracked the physiology of those babies. And the physiology was very, very different. Um, and what they found is that the babies that slept closest to the parent had the lower heart rates lower mm. breathing rates um, than the babies that were slept away even though those babies weren't they weren't crying they were that's what they were used to sleeping like their yeah. heart rates were higher their breathing rates were higher now what was really interesting is when they switched it around and they then put that baby that was used to sleeping really closely to the parent when they put that baby alone they were actually able to deal with that slightly stressful situation mm. and their heart rates weren't as high so it's really fascinating when we 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 might look at different babies and we might think that they're calm and they're asleep, but actually perhaps they're not. Mm. You know, perhaps their biology is working in a different way. And so it's just really interesting when we start to think about these things differently and we start to look at the research and understand, you know, majority of the world sleep together in yeah. a room. Um, and that's what our kind of biologies expect. Um, you go to other cultures and their their SIDS rates, are, you know, are much, much lower. Yeah. Um, and, and James McKenna, Dr. James McKenna says, you know, uh, in his work, we're pushing the boundaries of what is physically possible for babies. <laughs> yeah, we are. And that 
you know, again, there's a cost. Um, And it's understanding that and and supporting it. So it's really interesting over the years of me having my babies, the the, the kind of advice has changed that you maybe get around where your baby should sleep and but it's a given in our culture that you go and buy a cot you go and buy a Moses basket like that's just what we expect um yeah. because of years of conditioning yeah um you know it's what we see on tv it's what we see in the media it's what everyone does and so that's why we just that's what we do um yeah. but now you know co-sleepers are becoming very normal you know if you think only actually in maybe 15 20 years you know years having a, a, a cot that attaches to your bed 20 years ago would have seemed quite unusual you know a bit hippie and now it's like oh well every you know that's quite a normal thing for parents to buy so I do think that it's shifting closer and closer towards what the evidence is telling us yeah and it's it's interesting because there are clearly some situations where where you know people aren't able to co-sleep safely yeah but what can we do that will support that in different ways you know if they can't co-sleep at at night then can they use contact napping in the day um you know sleep is is very much not it doesn't have to be the same at night as it is in the day you know there's all these different versions of of what is deemed to be the right way yeah and I just think you know at the end of the day we're all humans uh and you know we can look at and see at the options and, and what works for us. Um, and also, I think it's really easy to get caught up in this. Well, if I do this today, this is what I'm always going to have I know, to do. That's what and I it just to, yeah. it just doesn't work like that. Like eventually, that baby will learn to self regulate and, yeah. and self soothe because you've soothed them. Now, yeah. that time scale, that timeline of when that might happen is 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 different for every child. Yeah, um, there are rough approximacies, a bit like when they start to walk or start mm-hmm. to crawl. Um, I certainly found with my youngest, um, he very much started sleeping through between two and three, the age of two or three. Mm -hmm. Um, And we'd co-slept a lot and he then would go to bed in his own bed and then would come down to us if he he woke up. Um, But but that became less and less as he got, you know, that predominantly Mm -hmm. between two and three. Um, I I just think it's interesting because that timescale doesn't suit, you know, well, I'm finishing my maternity leave at nine months. I need to go back to work. I need to... I need to yeah. function <laughs> and people are constantly asking you you know and I certainly found as soon as my son turned one even like when's the next one you know when you're having another baby a lot of people expect people and obviously no shade on anyone that has short age gaps or you know it's a very personal decision but there's a cultural expectation that you should just keep popping them out even though infancy lasts three years you know and they're still very needy at two um there's an idea that they must be independent by then Totally. And it's really interesting when you look at cultures, age gaps. So you go to yeah. some cultures and they looked what's called the natural spacing. Well, if you are following co-sleeping and, and breastfeeding kind of patterns, typically you're not going to be in a position to have another baby for a couple of years, two, yeah. three years. When you go to cultures where we, um, we, you know, we go to university, we earn lots of money in our 20s, we're having babies later. Yeah. You find that that gap is shortening because yeah. of that. Um, and, and then, you know, we've got more options um, in, in certain cultures around our options of feeding. So we don't have to breastfeed. Yeah. Therefore, you know, if we're not breastfeeding, our periods will come back sooner and our physiology changes and then we're more ready to have babies sooner. So there's all these stuff, all this stuff kind of going on that, that is shifting things. Yeah. Um, and it, yeah, it's really interesting. I went off on a bit of a tangent then, sorry, because I, what I wanted to come back to, which I really want to talk to you, to, my number one thing was about that what you were kind of touching on that 
uh, rod for your own back. If I do this today, if I contact nap today, if I carry my baby, wear them, or even my toddler, they aren't going to be independent. They aren't going to learn how to sleep here. And I'm going to be stuck here forever. That is su- that is the most pervasive message I see about parenting today is watch out. <laughs> like, don't let them get too used to it. What, what? But again, it's that element of we need to control them. Yeah. They need to fit what we want. Yeah. And actually, I don't want my daughter to be a compliant teenager. I don't want her to do what other people tell her to do. Yeah. I want her to do what I want her to do. Yeah. But you know, that's you want to guide work. her. <laughs> yeah. 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 So yeah. it's like we have to understand that that we what we do now, you know, it can feel really, really hard. But actually that's what we want as a, for them as adults. It's what we want for them as their own, you know, when they become parents. Yeah. And so it's kind of thinking that longer term. Um and it is, it, again, a lot of it is, is, is cultural, this idea of they're a good child if they do what they're told yeah. and, um, you know, they, they they fit in. But often what that means is that child is making themselves smaller than they want yeah. to be. They're not acting and behaving the way they want to act and behave. They're acting in a way that means that they get praise and it means that they get acceptance. Yeah. Um, and that means that they're squashing their own needs down. And it means that, um, you know, we then have adults who who don't have ways of meeting their own needs and so it, it it then you suddenly go oh yeah you know when you baby your baby just wants to sleep on you just meet that need and and don't think ahead mm. um, do what works now um because you don't know what is going to happen in the future you know they, we don't have crystal balls and they and change constantly like often they do change <laughs> you panic and then they're just yeah I think that's one of the hardest aspects of parenting is the mm. constant change like we live in a culture where we want control yeah. we want them to fit in we're used to getting up we go to work we have our timeline you know we do our holidays we do our stuff on our own timeline mm. um and and that lack of control that we then have when babies come along and this constant change because you do you get into a hab, you know you get into a rhythm with it and then it shifts up again yeah. um, and that's normally linked with what's going on for their brain development as well as physical development um so for example three to four months maybe four or five months is like a real um massive shift mm. where they go from being in that fourth trimester where they're really happy to sleep on you and they don't you know anybody they'll sleep on anybody um, and they just have really basic needs they just kind of feed and sleep and maybe need a little bit of interaction then it's like bam four months and this happens a lot because we get a lot of questions as consultants about facing mm. babies away because they're like, mm. the babies start turning around, they're pushing in the sling, mm. they're like getting distracted when they're feeding. And a lot of this is linked to their eyesight development. It massively yeah. um, shifts at that point. But also their brain, they're suddenly going, oh, there's a world out here. I can see a bit further now. Oh, this is really interesting. Oh my God, that's really scary. You know, mm-hmm. and, and so it's, 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 again, it's just being responsive to their needs. Um, so if a baby doesn't want to be in the sling because they actually do need at some points to be moving their arms and their legs a little bit more and a bit more free on the floor, for example, mm. um, then, then they need to be doing that. But again, if you've got kids to pick up at school and you've got you know shopping to do, then they might not always get that choice. But <laughs> yeah. it's about sort of, like I said before, it's about that balance of, of kind of all of the stuff. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's it, it's really interesting when you start to kind of pull it apart a bit and look at, well, why? Why is my baby doing this now? Yeah. Oh, OK, well, that's linked to to this is going on. And once we understand what's going on for them, we can we can change what we do. So I recommend instead of facing away, doing a hip carry. 
Yeah. Uh, because babies don't understand the concept of object permanence until they're about nine, 10 months old. Um, which is if you hide a toy under something, if you leave a room, like you are gone. They don't know you yeah. exist anymore um, until about nine to 10 months when they understand this concept. Um, so when you um, face your baby away at five months old, you have to do things to interact with them because mm. otherwise you're not there. So yeah. it's, I, holding hands a lot or, you know, just really trying to interact. But the, the issue with facing away is that you lose all eye contact all facial mm. impact you know uh, interaction is gone um and so you could then very easily miss cues of them being overstimulated mm. um often people say oh but they love it and yeah they may do but then you need to be watching out for when it's becoming overwhelming and yeah. turn them around yeah. um you know babies uh, it's quite dangerous if they fall asleep facing away just because of their airway can be compromised mm-hmm. depending on the height of the the carrier whereas if you're doing a hip carry or just slightly off-centered carry Mm -hmm. you still have the interaction but they can see the world as well and when it's too much for them they can just turn and tuck their head under and go to sleep Mm -hmm. (laughs) they they um plus you you can interact with them so if you know a lorry goes past and it's super loud and they look at you for reassurance you can be like oh that was a bit loud wasn't it oh yeah but we're okay you know uh, rather than that you can't see them and you've got no idea and they're freaking out. <laughs> and that um, obviously has benefits as well into like older babyhood and toddlerhood and that sort of language and shared experiences and connecting. It's really good forever, isn't it? It's beyond the baby stage as well. Yeah, and, and it's really interesting that we have, again, in uh, Western culture, particularly um, here in the UK, we have quite a lot of issues with speech in young children. Mm. Now, what we'll find is that many people might use certain carriers and they get to, you know, maybe nine months and, and it just isn't working anymore and the baby feels really heavy. Yeah. And so they then use, um, you know, the, the sort of the, the push, like the low down push chair type yeah. where they're facing away and they collapse and, and go away really easily, right? The really small ones. Um, they get very little interaction. Mm. when they're in that position um there's some amazing research that was done um in 2008 that informed uh, stokey around the the design of their buggy so their buggy mm. is higher up and babies face you um and it's really fascinating because what they found is that obviously when babies higher up and closer to you there's a lot more interaction yeah. so and that interaction is really important for language development um this this kind of exchange and serve serve and return that we get when we interact um and that applies you know even with your newborn if they're in the sling or carrier next to you you'll just be chatting away to them all day without really noticing you're doing it because they're there whereas if they're in a different room or in a container it just is harder to do just doesn't just doesn't kind of come naturally yeah um and and it's the same when they're sort of in in a buggy um if they're facing you the interaction is much much higher um and I kept my son facing us for a really long time I mean I think he was nearly two by the time we just turned him around in his buggy and but honestly I got so many comments for like a year and a half saying he needs to be facing out you're you're stopping him see the world and I was like I'm really not like he's seeing the world with me and we're looking at each other and I get to see his, I like seeing his reactions. And again, no shade if you like to turn your child out. I'm not, no judgment here, but I just was interesting how much people found that weird. It's understanding it and and why people think that's weird. And it's this understanding that we need to try and make these children independent sooner than later. Now, the problem with that is we push development 
and we then are stretching this this attachment and if we're doing that there's a long-term implication in that um philippa perry talks about this in her book um the book you always wish your parents had read and your children will be glad you did um she talks about attachment being like a bit of elastic between you and your baby and your child and initially it's very very close but if you try and push that elastic before it's ready before they separate themselves it just pings back to you so you'll see it with children that have insecure attachments or, or basically not a secure attachment. So whether it's one of the other types of attachment, they will often be more clingy, um, say, as a five year old, because they don't understand that it's safe and that you are coming back. Um, so it, it, it's really bizarre because the more we push independence younger, the worse the outcomes are. Um, the less ability to self-regulate, the less ability to be independent. Um, yeah, so it's, it's really interesting where that kind of concept came from. And I think a lot of stuff started pretty much going wrong for us in, in the UK in the, in the um, Victorian era, where um, men became much more involved in, in, in childbirth and, and in industrialization. So where we needed more people working in factories. So women were going to work and there was crushes and then we had child labor and mm -hmm. this whole concept and people started moving to cities to earn money, um, mm. to, you know, to try and make better lives for themselves. Um, but what, again, at what cost? At what cost? Yeah. So it, it, it's really interesting when you delve in a little bit into social history, um, that it what's is. shifted around, how we parent. Um, there's an amazing TED talk um, by Dorsa Amir um, and talking about culture. And it, it's really interesting because she went and worked in a, in a different culture for a long time. And then she came back to the US and she then talked about how different she viewed it. Um, mm. It's fascinating. It's a, one of my favorite TED talks. I will um, link to that in the show notes for sure. Because yeah, and I, um, in the first episode actually of this series, I spoke to a cultural anthropologist about that, that hundred year period that just has shifted and I think it is so it's so that like empowering when you realize that and I also just I want to say I'm I love how much you're talking about the long game because I feel like this isn't something that we talk about enough with parenting and like you like we've touched on this all about these hacks and how to fix this and train that and do this and tick this thing off your list and sometimes even myself you know I, I'm a mum to a two-year-old and um and I've done a lot of research and, you know, I'm really passionate about infant development and, you know, I'm not an expert, but I do know a bit. And um, even I sometimes do doubt myself or I have to sort of say, like, I have to remind myself that this is what I'm choosing to do now is actually for the long term payout. And sometimes when you see peers maybe have more compliant children or they fix something quickly like sleep or maybe they've done potty training really young and they've gone I don't know, they really force something about behavior or, or biology. And you think, oh God, I'm jealous. Like that, that looks, <laughs> they've got their evenings back or they've got their, you know, whatever. I do have to remind myself frequently that the way that I'm choosing to do this is for the long game. And that, and I've seen it with my sister's older children as well, that, you know, she was very, very responsive and it has paid off because her kids are much older now. So I think, okay, I'm doing this for the long game. It feels hard right now because it is hard. Parenting is not meant to be easy and convenient. You're raising a person. This is a hard job and it is really important and it's not going to be sorted by the time I go back from maternity leave. <laughs> basically. No, you're, yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think 
you know it it does shift things do change and and you know and then as you have more children you need your hands even yeah. more so so I <laughs> yeah. find often people come to me with you know subsequent babies more out of convenience more out of I can't put the baby down because the toddler might like do something to the baby yeah. <laughs> um also how do I feed my baby in the sling so that I can sit with my toddler at the same time yeah um you know I've got to do school run there's yeah steps involved I, I there's not space for me to take a buggy in here yeah um, actually if I'm pushing a buggy it's really hard for me to hold my older child's hand yeah um you know all of these things um kind of come up uh, you know the first time you, you don't quite have all those demands but you have all the other stuff that it's the first time you're doing all this so you're dealing with the heavy stuff the second third fourth whatever it becomes that more of that practical aspect yeah. <laughs> um you know I I very much co-slept with my second and third and particularly the third it was like I had to do whatever it meant that maximized our sleep like yeah uh I I, I did it because I didn't want the baby waking the other ones up because they also have school and so you just do you know certainly for me it was it was what was easiest actually yeah you know yeah. using the sling was easiest because it meant I felt like I could meet my baby's needs yeah. my needs and the other kids needs like all at once it's like magic yeah <laughs> it was like because you always feel like maybe you're not giving the baby enough because you're running around after the toddler and it's yeah. like but my baby is getting me yeah and also we never had issues with sibling um, kind of rivalry we never had issues with the, the kids saying oh I just want the baby to go back to where they came from I don't want that baby here because they just accepted that baby was part of me yeah like they just baby was just absorbed yeah you know rather than it being this other this sticky out thing that just annoyed <laughs> them and cried yeah. and took mummy or daddy away from me or you know they the, in that respect the babies really did slot into our lives yeah um, yeah you know, and and because I was just like nobody really noticed I was feeding because I would just be feeding in the sling or the carrier. Um, you know, it's important still to take time to to connect with your baby, kind of emotionally. Yeah. Um, <laughs> because actually, although you might be carrying them, you might be slightly disconnected from them. But it, it, at the end of the day, it was like that's a great way for me to kind of feel like I was me- I was physically meeting that baby's needs in those early months, um, just by carrying them without without needing to do very much else um and it has been shown you know it helps with um it reduces things like postnatal depression Mm -hmm. um again and it's that's through that biology you know a lot of these mental health uh conditions are are based in neurobiology they're based on our hormones and and um so again it doesn't always mean that medication is the, the the solution right what's the way that we can deal with that without without that perhaps um and it's not to say that medication isn't needed sometimes because our brains do go a bit haywire when we've had a baby because of the hormones because of the changes rapidly to our body when we've given birth um but again it's knowing you know if you um stop breastfeeding that your body is like whoa what's happened to this yeah baby? and that's a huge hormonal like, and emotional and neurological shift absolutely yeah. because if you went back 200 years that would mean that you wouldn't have your baby yeah. anymore so your body goes into grief yeah, mode yeah. right and so it's understanding that and then going, OK, well, actually, if I'm going to stop feeding, I need to cut down yeah. gradually and maybe do things a bit differently. Maybe I'll just maybe I'll pump uh, and remove yeah. some milk yeah. in that way. Um, you know, or, or how can I replicate this kind of in a, in a natural yeah. way? And, you know, I just try and say to people that the single carrier is just a parenting tool, just like yeah. a buggy, just like anything that you have. And you choose and define how you use it. 
doesn't mark you out as being a certain type no. of parent. Um, you know, everyone likes labels. Everyone likes putting people yeah. in boxes, um, you know, and, and it, it doesn't mean um, that you, you have to use a sling or carrier. You know, you will be carrying your baby in arms. You can build responsiveness without using a sling or carrier. But I would just say that a sling or carrier does make it a hell of a yes. lot easier. <laughs> um, you know, but but not just from that practical you know that practical aspect you know i we we um kind of shifted which sling we used because we moved and we were in a much more um country kind of area and i was like well we want to go out for walks and we can't really go those places with buggies um and so we then carried may until she was like three mm. um in the, in the carrier that we had um and and it was great because it meant we could go places that you just weren't accessible by buggies and you know, I, I find it's really interesting when you start delving into this concept around, you know, privilege, because we realise that many of us are massively privileged in how we live and how we can parent. Um, but actually, maybe we need to strip some of that away um, and, and just think about, well, what, what would I do if I didn't have this? Um, because, you know, we have to buy all this stuff because it's, it's what feeds our culture <laughs> of capitalism. Um but you know what babies really need very yeah. little in fact they need nothing yeah. um what they need is they yeah. need you they need your body they need uh you to surrender to the process um they don't need that that buggy they don't need that lovely cot they don't need all the lovely clothes um they don't need that high chair like we can make things work without having that stuff and, and I think it's just really acknowledging that a lot of this stuff is about us as parents and not about our babies yes. that I feel like that's a good place to end um but I, I mean I would also like you just to come and do like several more hours of talking and <laughs> I feel like there's so much more to cover isn't there I mean um it's amazing it's fascinating and, and that's amazing because one thing you know people don't think about it yeah. at all from that point of view most often people come to it from a from a I need my hands free and you know from a, from a practical point of view without understanding all of all of the other stuff yeah. behind it but um if people are finding the carrier you know they have or sling is not working for them like seek support because often tweaks very small tweaks make a big impact comfort if you can carry your baby in your arms or your child in your arms there will be a sling or carrier out there for you that will make that easier so I would say if you are using this little carrier and it's actually making it harder then it needs looking at um there's amazing slings or carriers out there for older children you know if they have conditions with low muscle tone for example um something like the easy feel easily goes up to seven years old so um we have now thanks to the internet you know much more access to buying more things in this way so we can look at all the different types of things or carriers that are out there because a lot of people make that mistake of just buying the one that gets the best reviews on yeah, yeah. Know, wherever um and actually it's like buying a pair of shoes or yeah. a car like it really depends on lots of different elements and aspects and um you know as a consultant we just want to help people get carrying comfortably yeah. like and, and that's the biggest thing and it might be buying something else or it might just be changing what you're using um but I have obviously loads of free stuff on my Instagram on YouTube um there's reels there's videos where I talk through stuff so there's lots of ways that people can get this um if they also want to book a, you know an online consult or find a local sling library um you can go to slingpages.co.uk um which is a great way to find your local consultant um because yeah we just we just love helping people because we just know the impact that it can have um 
on so many aspects you know we get people getting told by different professionals healthcare professionals you know oh no you, you can't carry a baby because they're low birth it's <laughs> like yeah that's probably the most needed case you know if babies are in um, hip casts uh you can still carry yeah. a baby um if you you know you have back concerns you have conditions we will work with you to find a solution i've worked with people babies on oxygen um you know parents on crutches uh parents with one arm parents in wheelchairs you know there's all these different um scenarios um and there's always a sling or carrier out there if you want it so yeah just just seek help if it's not working for you because um it can make your life easier on so many levels. Honestly, a sl- the, the sling library I went to, I know this sounds dramatic. I honestly think it saved my life. <laughs> I can't even emphasize how much of a difference it made to my parenting experience. So yeah, I, I just want people to know that if you, yeah, just from the, like, even from just a, an emotional support, you know, of having people who understand, who aren't going to tell you just to sleep train and put your baby down in a cot, you know, who will support you through that carrying and just, yeah, just, it changed my life. I just like, like on everything we've been saying on a practical level, on emotional level. Um, and there is, there are amazing people like you and other people all over the world who can, who know so much. I just, thank you for, for sharing the contents of your brain with us it's been so interesting (laughs) you're Um, welcome yeah I just thank you so much Zoe okay so here are my final uh thoughts on today's episode which was actually really hard to wrap up because there are just a million different tangents we could have gone off on this subject and after we stopped recording even though Zoe and I both had really busy days and lots of things we had to get to we kind of still kept talking for quite a long time so um and I kind of wish I'd recorded that bit as well but um yeah we'll just have to do another another chat at some point in the future and hopefully uh you enjoyed listening to to it but yeah I I was reflecting back on this conversation and uh, I was thinking about something I'd read from um, Dr. Gordon Newfeld, who you may well have heard of. He's an extremely world famous, highly acclaimed psychologist. And um, and one of the many very genius things he says is that as parents, we can choose to either be sculptors or gardeners. And I think that's just such a wonderful analogy, isn't it? Because sculptors shape their children they have a clear idea of what a child should become what that looks like and they chisel influence and seek to form the child into a particular shape and this is how actually parenting experts viewed child rearing for many generations um this is this behaviorist idea that we are all just conditioned by our experiences and that by being rewarded or punished for our various behaviors we will then be influenced by that you know that we are will turn out okay as long as the good stuff is praised and the bad stuff is is disciplined and essentially it assumes that babies are are these blank slates and that the parent is responsible solely for how they turn out or rather the the authority figures in that child's life is responsible for how they have been shaped and formed however if we reframe parenting and look at it differently a gardener 
tends to it, it, a gardener tends to the conditions that promote progress so rather than the progress itself for example we don't blame a rose if it doesn't bloom we look at the soil the sunlight and we we support the environment to help that rose flourish we don't try to make it need less sun or less food we understand that these things are necessary so just as children need that closeness and security in order to flourish when we deny their emotional needs to attach to us deeply the needs don't disappear they just come out in other ways and our babies and our toddlers are these vulnerable little seeds they are full of potential and As parents, we need to nurture the soil, water the roots, provide sunlight and perhaps prune a little bit every now and then. But the child will grow as well as it has the right environment and support. And and when the rose bush or child is ready, it won't need as much daily intense nurturing as it did when it was a tiny sprout in a little plant pot. And as Zoe says, carrying is just a brilliant ancient parenting tool it helps us respond and it helps us be nurturing even when we're busy meeting either our own needs or the needs of other children or other people in our busy lives and separation happens ruptures are unavoidable no one is perfect we really don't have to be perfect either A child does not need a caregiver who is staring into their eyes 24-7 and perfectly responding to every single emotional need they have. Okay, this is, you know, good enough parenting really is good enough. But what carrying helps us do is repair and connect when those inevitable ruptures occur. when, When separation has to happen because that is life and that is how we've evolved carrying and closeness helps you come back together again and in the TED talk that Zoe mentioned today um, the anthropologist Dorsa Amir talks about evolutionary mismatch that is our culture has evolved faster than our biology has so our babies are born expecting to be held and fed frequently not on a schedule and they have these really strong innate instincts for closeness and co-regulation with an attachment figure but our world has moved on we don't value the hard work of parenting we see co-sleeping and natural term breastfeeding for example as a bit weird a bit weak we are fearful of parents being wrapped around their children's fingers and there are still people out there in 2022 telling parents not to be manipulated by their baby's cries. I I just, it beggars belief. You know, there are people still saying that babies are just protesting or they've learned that a cry will get them what they want so they're going to cry more. This this is ultimately the logic behind sleep training as well, isn't it? I mean, it's based on the fear that if you always respond, they'll always call out for you. When in reality, this is exactly what we want our children to do. We want them to rest in that security of knowing that their needs will be met. It's a really good and very healthy thing for a baby or toddler 
to know that if they need their parent or caregiver, that person will come to them. And it's hard, particularly in a culture without kind of normal extended family units and a community that really gets involved with 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 raising children where we don't have that village it really does take a village to raise a child and it's not there even our working hours are completely unparent friendly on the whole and in the UK we have was it two weeks paternity leave that that is actually a pay cut for the vast majority of of families And even shared parental leave, which is an option and has been for the last five or six years, technically, it's actually used by about 2% of people who are eligible for it. So, you know, the actual parental leave that that kind of what often mothers take, maternity leave, even that is only half of what you would get working full time on minimum wage. But anyway, I've gone off on a bit of a rant. That's a rant for another day. But what I'm saying is... Carrying and connecting matters, even if our culture doesn't value it. Carrying and connectedness shapes our little one's brains for the better. And we live in a culture that undermines its importance. And our culture, throughout the whole baby industry, is often trying to fix a problem that doesn't actually exist. The problem is not that babies need us intensely. It's not that babies can't be put down or sleep away from us. It's that the problem is that nobody is supporting the parents through this. And nobody is celebrating the hard work that parents are doing. Okay, so what do you think? I, you know, I would love to hear um, your thoughts on all of the things that Zoe talked about today. Lots of uh, really interesting theories and ideas about carrying, infant development, little brains, relationships, attachment, all of this stuff. I find it fascinating and I loved talking to her and it's definitely made me think a lot uh, in some new ways about various parts of my own parenting practice. But as I said at the start, you know, I hope nobody finds this episode shaming in any way that because they don't always carry their child that their child is not going to develop you know to be securely attached or anything that really isn't the case I think what Zoe did a really great job of was talking about all these neurological benefits to to normal everyday closeness and how you can then use slings and carriers as a as another tool in order to protect this so but tell me, yeah, tell me what you think. Come along to my Instagram page or leave a comment here wherever you're listening to the podcast. And as ever, thank you to everyone who's been rating and reviewing and subscribing to the podcast. It really does make a difference. Thanks so much for listening. I'll uh, I'll see you next week. Mm-hmm.